Does this work? Can you hear me? I did it. <laughs> Every time I do something of the most minor significance, like I put on, that technically, like put on the, the, the uh, microphone and it should work, I feel so proud of myself, you know. <laughs> and in my family, uh, in my family, one of the things that we say to each other is a story. I, I want to talk today about stories and how we incorporate stories into the way that we understand our lives. But my grandson, who is now 30 years old, uh, so you can tell how old this story is, was... Um, I had him with me. We, I was babysitting, and he was in my car with me. Uh, must be about 27 years ago, because uh, he was about three, and he was sitting in a car seat in the car. And uh, we went to uh, we did, did this errand and that errand. You know how you do when you have children with you. And we went back to the car. Oh, I pulled into a, a parking lot, into a parking uh, area. And uh, I came around the back, and I opened the seatbelt, and I said, Colin, you know, uh, I have, my back is hurting me today, so you have to climb down out of this car seat by yourself. I can't pick you up. So he's okay. And so he stands up. Of course, I'm helping him and watching him, and he turns around, and he climbs down very carefully out of, this, out of the seatbelt, out of his car seat, and he's down on, on the ground. And I said to him, in just his tone of voice, I said, what a big boy you are. And he said, in the same tone of voice, I are. And, and it was just so sweet, you know, because he was just saying it, but he got the import of it, and he got the self-confidence of it. He just didn't get the grammar, but that's okay. So I said, oh, what a big boy you are. I said, I are. And so that's 27 years ago, and in my family still... Somebody will say, uh, what a, this is a great meal, Mom. What a great cook you are. I are. Everybody says I are. So you can start to say it now. It's such an affirmation. If somebody says, he says, it's true, I are that, really. Well, I'm glad to be back. How many people here have never been here before? What's your name? Lou. Lou. Where do you come from? Where? San Francisco. And how to come you decided to come today? Uh, this is my last week of uh, vacation before I started the job. So I thought, yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad you came. And I feel welcome anytime. Are you excited about your new job? Uh, yeah, but I was more excited about my vacation. <laughs> I had a friend who, when he retired from a life, a whole successful life as a corporate executive with a very large corporation, uh, that that he said, you know, I'm really enjoying being retired. He said, I like I like my job. He said, but the trouble with work is it cuts into your day so much. So, <laughs> so that's the problem with that. <laughs> so tell me your name again. Lou. What's your name? Chris. Chris. Where do you live? Uh, That's a big ride. I'm glad you're here. What's your name? And you, have you never been to Spirit Rock or just not on a Wednesday? 
Well, I'm glad you're here. Who else has never been here before? There you are. That's fabulous. Are you just now newly retired? This is like a retirement. It's been about a year. So as my friend said, it cuts into your life so much. <laughs> there is life after work, so. Especially now with, that we live so long, you know, it used to be different. Uh, but living long is now a whole different... I think about that a lot, that the, the whole way that you think about a life is different now. Who else has never been here before? Everybody's been here before. That's great. So have I. Uh, And Wednesday morning, you should know, is always here, whether or not I'm here, so that it's only not here if it's Christmas Day. Every other day of the year, every other Wednesday of the year, Spirit Rock is happening with somebody. A good part of the time it's me, and sometimes it's other people. And one of the things I particularly want to talk about today is, uh, uh, I'll I'll remind you again after we sit, but uh, one of my favorite stories from a recent year is uh, uh, one where I was teaching a retreat, a period of a retreat up on the hill, so uh, where people actually come and stay over for five days or a week or ten days. And so the retreat was several days old, and we had, in the style of retreats, begun the retreat, and in the style that just this morning, I'll give you some instructions for how to sit and meditate and try to be alert in every moment. And often in retreats, we, not so much now, because I have this in my mind, but maybe formally, just plunge into all the instructions, and then we'd give some talks, and we we're entertaining, and we we're interesting, and we we're pleasurable. And, but all day long, people are having instructions about what to do, what to do when you sit, what to do when you walk, what to do when you eat. And, so, and people are doing it day after day. And somebody came into their one-on-one appointment with me, really a person who I had seen sitting and walking and through the retreat. And he sat down, and he looked at me with such a straight, plain face, and he said, What are we doing here, really? And that is the most important question. It has really informed my teaching since then. What are we doing here, really? Like on Wednesday morning, we're coming because we always come together, because it's a like-minded sangha, because pretty much people know, uh, they don't necessarily know how each other votes, really. There are people with different voting that are here. But everybody here is convinced that kindness is the way to live. And that goodness is a happy way to cultivate a life and makes you, in the end, feel happy about your life. And that gratitude is good for you to express and to know how to receive all of those things. So it's a nice place to hang out with friends. Also because of the way that the morning unfolds, we hear about who's here and who's who's not here because they're sick or who's not here because they have some wonderful travel or we get to be a little bit of a community. We knew when John had gone to Greece to be part of the welcoming Syrian refugees effort. So you know a little bit, it's, it's, a, it's a community part of Spirit Rock 
There's a group that I think people begin to feel that they belong to. And we sit quietly for a while, and we hopefully, I think, presumably, cultivating some technique of attention. And then we share what's on our mind in terms of prayers for people. And then the, after that, I talk about some topic of Dharma, so that's how it goes every week. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about, and I say it a lot week after week, that no matter what the title of the Dharma talk is, it's always the same thing. You know, if you go on uh, the website of dharmaseed.org, which is a free website, which I'm happy to say, has recorded Dharma talks for maybe 40 years from when they were on cassette tapes, which they then had to put on cassettes, on, on discs, which they then had to digitalize. It's all digitalized now. And there are thousands of talks from, th- from dozens of teachers, about hundreds probably of names of things, different names of Dharma talks. I, uh, I think when, I, when they let me know for the last time they let me know, I think there were talks by Sylvia Boorstein, 297 or something like that. I told my husband if I died, that's, that's enough times, almost, if I teach a little bit longer, he could have what, listened to a tape a day ad, <laughs> ad infinitum <laughs> in case he didn't have enough of my <laughs> overblown self-confidence. He could hear some more of it after I'm gone. <laughs> but they're all there and they're all free. And everybody's all free. And people listen to them in um, notably all over the world because they're digitalized and a lot in prisons where people wouldn't be able to afford them and in schools and that kind of thing. So I'm very happy about that. But I always think that there's... I I used to think that we'd run out of stories and uh, we'd just be saying the same thing. And that's really what I want to talk about after we sit together. We are just really talking about the same thing. My, uh, a couple of years ago, maybe it's eight or nine years ago now, I went to Washington, D.C. to a conference where the Dalai Lama was doing a week-long uh, uh, ritual of Kali Chakra. It was a very beautiful ritual and sand drawing and monks chanting and drawing mandalas with colored sand. It was a wonderful week. And I got back, and my friend Sally Armstrong, with whom I teach here, said to me, um, how, was the, how was the conference? How was the Kali Chakra? I said, it was great. She said, did His Holiness teach anything new? And then we were standing looking at each other, and we started to laugh. His Holiness didn't really... We, actually, this is different. It's got two parts of the story. I, we started to laugh because His Holiness didn't teach anything new. It's the same new. I mean, the, we are all teaching what did the Buddha teach. And that's 2,500 years old. So, uh, so we are still teaching the same Buddha Dharma. But after a while, I realized I had to change that story to His Holiness was saying something new. And it was seven or eight years ago, but I would think it was prescient because it's now becoming much more in the, in the general ethos or understanding that uh, that uh, what he is teaching, which is truth as the Buddha saw it uh, and, and articulated it, 
is very much the same truth as has been articulated in other enduring faith traditions. There are certain things that are true, that kindness makes you feel better, that um, aversive emotions that fill the mind cloud the mind and prevent wise behavior. It's not just the purview of Buddhism, it's the purview of wisdom. So that when you see a, a word like wisdom traditions, they're traditions of, that have different practices in them. People bow this way or tell stories about Jesus or Muhammad or Moses or other leaders. But they all say the same thing. Because there's a, there's a sort of a fundamental truth. And we are telling the same truth of the Buddha. Uh, and sometimes I think, I, what would the Buddha make of us? Because we're using such contemporary metaphors for doing it, we're talking about uh, going to a ball game and uh, uh, watching the group fervor uh, and enthusiasm when a team wins the World Series and then how the camera goes over and looks in the dugout of the other team and you see the players sitting like that. And you think in your mind, oh, someone should go and remind them, it's just a game, and it's just this year, and they'll win next time. And we make Dharma talks out of that, because that's what we know. We don't know about the, 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 the stuff of life 2,500 years ago, or if we know about it, we don't live that. We live in contemporary times. We live in politics, and television, and tweets, and all of that. So it's it's he's not teaching anything new, and we are saying what's really perennially true, and we're saying it in new clothing. So that's what we do here. But I didn't say the answer to this this man who said to me, "What are we doing here, really?" So I'm going to start when we sit again to say, "What are we doing here, really?" Okay, that's what I'm going to talk about. But I'd like for us to sit. For, wait. Uh, he's there. I knew it. <laughs> this is Ace Liebman. When he can be, he's here all the time. He's a good personal friend of mine. And Ace has taken it upon himself to remind me. See, you just have to sit there. You don't have to say anything. To remind me when I'm about to plunge into the instructions for we'll sit together now. To remind me to say, uh, Sylvia, you didn't have anybody, everybody introduce themselves to each other next to each other and say hello and befriend or welcome into the community, everybody who's there. So ready, set, go. This is Ace's admonition. Go.
You know, at the end of long retreats, sometimes there's a, a retreat just ended up on the uh, at the top of the hill oh, a week or so ago. There was a there was a month long retreat in February and a month long retreat in March, and there were some people who opted to come for the whole two months. So there were people who moved in and stayed there for sixty days. And day and night, they, and took a vow of silence before they began. So except for talking to their teacher every second day for 10 minutes in a one-on-one interview, they didn't talk to anybody for 60 days, nor make any facial recognition, like any... They just kept their own space for the 60 days. And uh, if you're in the position of teaching those kinds of retreats, as I have been in the past, you see all these people the whole time... And then at the last, not at the last minute, because you have to start a day or so before to introduce people back to looking at each other in the eye and actually communicating. So you have people look at each other and say a few things and say a few other things. And then we say, okay, in your little group, let's just have uh, two minutes for each of you to be saying what was the most important thing. Well, it doesn't even matter what you said. And all of a sudden, that whole room that's been like... For two months, all of a sudden, it's like someone pushed a button in everybody, and they all got animated. <laughs> everybody who had been so without animation, and it's very uplifting to see there's actually somebody in there in each of these bodies that are moving around that animates them and causes them to relate to each other. They didn't forget how to do it in the two months. It's very, it, it, it's really, it's really lovely, and it's very. Um, it's very heroic to do that, by the way. Anyway, here we are. What are we doing here, really? Is is you can say that about every? If you can say that if you're sitting for sixty days, or if you're sitting for twenty-five minutes, what are we doing here, really, in this twenty-five minutes? The two most obvious things that we're doing is we're attempting to narrow down the scope of things that we're doing. We're not doing anything, we're just sitting here. And we encourage you to sit in a position that's comfortable and just stay there. Doesn't mean you can't adjust yourself if you're uncomfortable, but you'd notice it, and you adjust, and you'd notice something else. But one of the things that happens if you slow down what you're doing and you slow down your activity, say, don't go anyplace, stay here, is that the mind calms down a little bit. It stays here also. And then it stays here and it feels what's going on in itself. The first instruction in the Buddha's instructions for the four foundations of mindfulness is the meditator sits down. I love this because it's it's from 2,500 years ago. It says the meditator sits down at the trunk of a tree. So we don't have so many trunks of the trees around here. It's a different venue. But the meditator sits down cross-legged, so the meditator sits down however it's comfortable for she or he to be sitting down, for her or him to be sitting down, and puts the body in a relaxed posture and allows the attention to rest in this body and the breath that comes in and goes out of it. And just do that. And when something else disrupts that attention of resting easily in each moment, and when the mind registers awareness of, oh, I'm not right here, okay, but now I am. Because all you have to do is remember, oh, I'm not here, but there's my breath, I am here. And I'm here, and I'm here, and here, and here, 
and here. And the only things that are really here is your breath and your body and the thoughts that arise and pass away. Sometimes people like to describe those thoughts as clouds in a the sky. They just come in and float out if you just notice them. Or um, logs in a stream. You don't have to jump into the stream and ride down on a log. You could just notice there was a thought. But how to rest in this moment, moment after moment, without being troubled by it. My friend Ajahn Amaro says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is its natural peace and ease and just stay there. Which is just such a big instruction. It assumes that there's a natural peace and ease. And he says, stay there. Only be alert to when something disturbs that natural peace and ease. Notice it and return to the peace and ease. So let's sit with one of those two instructions. The first instruction was notice what's happening. I'm sitting, sitting is happening, breath in and breath out, and breath in and breath out, and whatever else is happening. You could notice that. And or you could notice peace and ease, peace and ease, peace and ease, falling asleep, uh-oh, feeling annoyed about falling asleep, trying to sit up a little taller so I won't fall asleep. Well, maybe I'll just sleep a little bit and then I'll wake up. Okay, peace and ease. I'll have a little bit of peace if I just take a nap. Okay, all right. Whatever you do, don't fight with whatever your experience is. That's the biggest instruction.
it's become our way to spend the last several minutes that we sit together quietly mentioning into the space whomever is in our lives or in our minds or in our hearts that we're particularly thinking about uh, with blessing and with hope and prayer.
knew that he was pulling up on the beach suddenly a big wave came and kind of knocked him over with his smashed the canoe into him and he broke his hip and he's in his early 70s and he's poor doesn't have much money and a mexican family put up their life savings so that he could have surgery and he now has a titanium hip he was able to pay the family back but he's depressed and i am not there so i can't urge him to get up and do physical therapy so he can be up and about and so i'm just wishing him well thinking of him with this new titanium hip of my daughter-in-law who soon will give birth <clears throat> and I'm sending her well wishes that she be well and the baby be well and she has a tiny bruise. I'm thinking always about how somehow soothing and reassuring it is to me to be part of a group of people who share uh, with such tenderness what's in their hearts and minds for people that they are caring about in particular situations. And even if I don't know who it is that's sharing or what the particulars of the situation are, I, I, I'm always um, confirmed in the sense that human beings have an extraordinary capacity to care about each other, even when they don't know each other, that they have an extraordinary capacity to care, and that truly, in some way, um, there will be a way for human beings to put that capacity together and make this world into a more caring world. that manifests in more love and kindness than we've known. I say it often, I'm sure, that I think the main reason that if, if someone were to ask me why do I come here on the Wednesdays that I'm here, um, I like to teach, I like to see my friends, I like to do this, but I like to sit for that last five minutes in a room full of people who are feel free to share what they're caring and moved about because it inspires my own heart about human beings. I had a friend who was... Um, He's now retired clergy in San Francisco. Uh, he was, he is uh, uh, Alan Jones, and he uh, was the dean of Grace Cathedral. 
And he did write a book, uh, his own autobiography, in which he talked about his own life as an Episcopal minister. And he said about himself and Christian gospel, he said, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer. And I was so moved by that particular thing that he said, because I would say, okay, I'm that too. In all the stories that I know, I don't believe the literal stories, but I am a believer in the sense that human beings can do outrageously good things on behalf of other people, that they can be really lifted out of self-protectiveness um, and really become part of the greater body. Um, how do you feel when you finish sitting? Like now. More rounded. Yeah, I feel more, you know, spacious and calm, but also my heart feels full. Heart feels full. I came home. You know, that, 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 I mean, everything is a wonderful answer, but I feel very much that I feel home has been in my mind a lot these last several weeks, that, um, when I come back to myself, which could be like I'm on a retreat for a long period of time or I sit for a half hour, my mind like catches up with itself. It's like always trying to catch up with itself. How many people here have to-do lists that you carry in your phone? List to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this, 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 this. So you're always doing the last thing and at the end of the day, phew, I did it all. Okay, now I get up and I do it again. And I think we don't, I don't catch up with myself when I sit down. I catch up with myself. I have a discipline that I've been doing. Probably you have it too. I am determined not, if I arrive in a restaurant or in a place where I have a meeting with somebody or at a doctor's appointment or at a dentist's office or wherever, that every single other person is on their device. I am not going on the device. You also, Jeff? You. And part of it is, yeah, yeah, I'll show you I'm not on my device, you know. <laughs> I am always a show-off. I'm going to die showing off. But, but I, yeah, but, but it actually improves the quality of my sitting there. I realize I'm in a room with people doing stuff, and I don't know what's going on with them. Maybe they're nervous, that's why they do stuff, or they're addicted to the phones, or maybe they're waiting to see that their grandchild got born, or the... Or the, uh, the the operation is over and they survived or whatever. But if I notice any of those things about the people, then I feel connected to them. I hope that that's true, that it's good news that they've got. Otherwise, I forget that I'm with people or uh, <laughs> I was sitting next to... Uh, I was with my husband having breakfast somewhere just not so long ago. There was a young family near us and a mother and a father and three children. They were probably all under five, and they were having a good time with each other. They were all the baby is climbing off and on the one parent and the other parent, and everybody is laughing and talking and cutting up the pancakes and whatever. And they just looked so happy in that moment. And I had such a good feeling about. It. I really recognized myself sixty years ago. Uh, 60 years, about 60 years ago in that position, 50 years ago in that position. I thought to myself, 
they're having such a good time. Little do they know how many midnight trips to the emergency rooms and how many meetings with teachers and how many upset romantic breakups and how many this and how many that is down the road. They don't know that, but that's good because they're just having this good time now. If somebody said, you know, there's going to be all kinds of stuff along the way, there is going to be all kinds of stuff, but it's not always there. If you knew what was always there and the bad was, or the difficult was what stuck out, maybe you wouldn't do it. But to notice that you're having a good time when you're having a good time. Did you want to say something else about how it is to sit? Yeah. I feel like I'm here for the shared field of peace Yeah, that, that just arises. It's always there. I know it's always there, but I'm not always able to access it but here there's this wonderful shared feeling of peace so less separateness I'm very happy to hear that I try to think about it um, oh how many people have seen the film Yitzchak anybody saw the film Yitzchak go to see the film Yitzchak that's like a <laughs> if it's still in the Rafael Yitzchak Perlman is the world's most acclaimed violinist and this is a it's a it's a documentary of his life, starting from when he's a little boy. And he had polio when he was quite young. And you see him as a little pudgy boy sitting uh with his leg braces, which he's had all of his life, and um playing the violin and his mother and father with him. And it's a story about him uh growing up and being recognized as, as talented and coming to New York with his mother and living uh, somewhere on Amsterdam Avenue in a one room upstairs and having lessons at Juilliard from when he was a young boy and his mother and he alone in a new country and they don't speak English and uh, and he's had a lovely life he's now he used to be able to walk around on those half crutches but now he's an older man so he's always on the scooter but it's such a happy movie, and it's full of music of him playing then and now. Cheerful, friendly, generous, and I, I'm telling you the story because at the end of the movie, um, the people, the people in the Rafael, uh, applauded. Who applauds a movie? You know, the movie is not live. They're not real people. But everybody was so in a good mood, and then they come out in a good mood. And I think to myself, in those moments, in that moment of shared delight in in some magical aspect of somebody's life, not even ours, we get lifted up. So there are terrible things that happen in life, but there are extraordinary, wonderful things that are part of life. Which got me around to thinking about uh, I w- the last couple of weeks that I was here before. I think I've been not here for five weeks. Anyway, four for sure. Long time. And just before that, I had been talking about certain stories which really shape your imagination or shape mine anyway. And I I was talking about, I think that there, there are certain stories that we hear as part of our Dharma education, 
I mean, we tell about Yitzhak Perlman or the people sitting in the in the Red Sox dugout, but we also talk about the Zen master who said this and the other Zen master and the Buddha who said this and that or sat under the bow tree. So there's certain stories that shape how we understand the world, and the stories are are, are valuable. And I was talking about that... Um, I was, uh, th- that maybe one story could tell the whole thing and we wouldn't need more than one story. We would just tell the same story over and over again. And the story that I had in mind, which would probably be redundant for all of you who were here while I was waxing eloquent about that story. It's a good story. was the story about the monk who's running away from the tiger. How many people know the story of the monk who's running away from the tiger? How many people don't know the story of the monk who's running? Okay, these guys win, so let's re-go over the monk and the tiger. Monk is walking along, in the time of the Buddha, the monk is walking along on a, no, it couldn't have been the time of the Buddha. Well, who knows, it's some ancient time, monk in robe, on time, walking along an open plain outside of a jungle. And all of a sudden, he becomes aware of the fact that there's a tiger behind him walking along. And he notices the tiger, and he starts to run. And the tiger starts to run. And the tiger is running after him. And he runs faster, and the tiger runs faster. And he comes to the edge of that plateau, or whatever it is, and there's a canyon there. And he realizes he's got no place to go, tiger bearing down on him. And he sees a thick vine hanging down over the side of the cliff. And he leaps off the cliff and grabs on the vine and is holding on, swinging on the vine. And the tiger is growling down off the side of the cliff. And the bottom of the ravine is full of rocks and crashing water. And it's a long way down. So he looks up at the tiger, he looks down at the water, and he realizes that he's stuck there, and he's really dependent on this vine. And just at that point, he notices that a mouse has come out from behind uh, the cliff and begins to gnaw on the vine. So that's the scene. Then he got the scene. He noticed over here, there's also a little plant that's coming out from the wall of the cliff. And it's got a a strawberry on it. And the strawberry is ripe. And he picks the strawberry and he eats it. And he says, this strawberry is wonderful. That's the story. So, anybody want to say something about the story? Yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. What? It's um, it's finding the pleasant in the present. Oh, that's a nice way to put that. Yeah, because a lot of stuff, bad stuff, is happening in that moment. But there is one good stuff, and that's the strawberry. And he's going to focus on the pleasant. See now, that thank you very much because I was thinking about it ever ever since because I thought I must have been in a in a particular phase of the moon when I was thinking this is it because the piece of the story that I was really looking at is the hanging on the vine piece which has always been and continues to be significant to me because I think that the fact is that we're all hanging on vines all the time nobody is not hanging on a vine 
The thing is, at the end of all of our lives, we'll die. We don't know how long or short, how fast the mouse is gnawing away, but there's no other end of that story except the end of life. And that we realize that to be alive and to go out in the morning is to undertake a, you know, a certain amount of risk. Uh, you never know what's going to happen to you if you go out. You don't even know what's going to happen to you if you stay in. You know, you could have a big rainstorm and your your house can slide into the ocean. Or you could be safely under a tree and a lightning might strike the tree and you might, you don't know. It's it's uh, fundamentally vulnerable. And the Buddha talks a lot about this is a vulnerable situation. And if we realize that everything is vulnerable, we, we what what I was not focusing so much on, what I was focusing a lot on, which remains true to me, is that we're all in a precarious situation. And everybody out here, I'm sure, has some awareness of when something terrible happens to somebody, you say, whoa, that could happen to me, or whoa, that could happen to one of my persons, or we hear something about somebody says about my child, grandchild or my child, and we say, whoa, that person must say, whoa, it could happen to me. And I, I think that's all, it's all true, it could happen to me. But I think that the part of it that was seeming of paramount importance to me, of importance to me, was the fact that we're all so vulnerable and we're doing the best we can to keep ourselves cheerful in the middle of that vulnerability, to keep ourselves enough buoyant to go out in the morning and go about things and make relationships and make babies and sign contracts and build houses and have plans and do stuff. And it takes a certain amount of confidence that life is finite, but probably not today. You know, today I can invest in. It's a very broad statement because we could be too depressed and then we can't. But generally speaking, we get up every morning knowing you never know. And we go out and do things anyway. And I was thinking it was doing me a lot of good to keep that in my mind. Because if I got annoyed at people, like let's just say it could happen that you're watching television and you see a particular person that's a... Has a particular idea that you don't that you don't agree with, and you could be like anger could arise in you, could, uh, and it starts to do that, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, this person is also frightened. Things could happen to them also, and they also want to live and go home and they are as vulnerable as everybody else. And if I see everybody instead of seeing them as them, but as a vulnerable person hanging on a vine, then I feel more open-hearted to them. They are having a life as I am. In You can either see it as in eternal jeopardy or internal eternal possibility, as Andrew was pointing out. So that was it. And you were right there with it. And I was in such a, really looking at, because it's actually functional to me. And I see anybody, not saying who, but anybody that really raises ire begins to arise in me. And I think this person is also frightened. This This person is also doing the only thing they know how to do to make themselves comfortable. 
at this point. They're doing the only thing they can possibly do. Given the parents they had and the upbringing they had, they are stuck being them, just as I am stuck being me. And we're all hanging on a vine. Then instead of being mad at them, I can be compassionate about them, I can wish they were different, I can mobilize all my efforts to not give them any power in the world, but I don't have to hate them. And if I stay, if I stay looking at what I most want to have is a mind without enmity in it. I don't want to hate anybody. I want to have a mind without enmity because a mind with enmity is painful. It's not because I want to be so noble. Everybody would say, what a great woman Sylvia was, so noble. I don't want to be, if it's noble, that's fine. I want to be happy. And if my mind has anger in it, I'm not happy. It's that if you're angry at something, which means these persons or persons are part of the world or this shape of people, or this color of people, or this ethnicity of people, or this anything of people, those I don't like, then I wall off my own heart. And I make it impossible for me to have an open heart towards all beings and have access to my own compassion, which I think for all of us is limitless. Look what we do. We sit here and we hear stories where sometimes you can't even make out what people say, which I'm fine with. There's a wonderful book of um, called Whispered Prayers it has to do with Tibetan prisoners of war uh, when Tibet was invaded. And so and the, the whole book is of people whose faith was never dimmed and they in, in their capacity to cultivate um, a warm heart. And towards that end, they would say their prayers all day long that their compassion be augmented and their contentment be sustained in the in the in the in the middle of terrible privation and torture. And they said, finally, the guards wouldn't let us pray anymore because they knew that that was sustaining us. So we didn't pray out loud. We whispered our prayers. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful phrase without even knowing. We whispered prayers that we just really want to feel better. So people are whispering their prayers. I don't have to hear exactly who about who that somebody is having somebody in mind with that kind of a love, with, with love about a certain painful situation. And it bring, and it, I, I'm sure it brings up in you a feeling of tenderness that is sustaining to me, that my own heart does that by itself. I don't have to tell it. Feel moved about this, feel compassion about this. There was a piece of a sentence that I wanted to end that I didn't quite end. It has to do with Andrew. I know where I'm going. Okay. So we go forward a little bit with that because I also want to remember to say the other thing that gives me a lot of pleasure in my own mind to see that compassion is self-arising if I let my mind be quiet. You really look at a situation and you see past what's going on and you think this person is in pain. This person is in pain. I look what I looked at the news this morning. People are in pain. They're saying such untruths. They know it's untrue. Everybody knows it's untrue, and they got to be in terrible discomfort. And everybody in the world is seeing it. And I, you know, I don't like them, but I, I, I at least am uh, sustained in not in not hating them. I don't want to do that. It confuses my own mind to be furious.
It's really a self-protective thing. I don't want to be furious. So the end of, of what Andrew is reminding me is that I, I think that's all very useful. I think that that hanging on a vine, I said I'm going to write a book called Hanging on a Vine. We're all hanging on a vine and it's going to be about recognizing that all of us are living in with some level of awareness about the precariousness of life itself. It just makes you nervous on some bottom line. Animal, mammal, reptilian level. Uh-oh, can I survive this? But that's not all. You know, on top of that, and we all have that probably built into our nervous system. Ah! But we also have, because we are higher level mammals and we have big brains and we can think things over, we can allow in other feelings and other thoughts. Like, there are strawberries all over the place. You know, from the time you're born until the time that you die, there are a lot of strawberries. And that uh, to notice the strawberries, like I'm thinking about the Perlman movie. Uh, it's called Yitzchak. And I went, at the end, people applauding a movie and everybody in a good mood and everybody looking at each other and saying, in that moment, nobody was thinking, I'm sure, grievous thoughts about how the world was. We were celebrating beauty and art and parents and teachers and uh, that somehow the Yitzhak Perlman's first violin teacher at Juilliard is interviewed uh, as an older woman talking about what it was like to hear him play the first time. She said he was mad. He didn't want to come to that. They brought him to her for kind of an audition beginning first lesson. And he was mad, and he didn't speak the language, and he didn't want to be there, and he was given bad looks. And, you know, you look at him, he's probably eight or nine years old. You know that an eight or nine-year-old can give you really bad looks. <laughs> and then they, they somehow convey to him he's supposed to play the violin. And he played something, I, I remember, I don't remember what it was, but it's something that has enormous demands of, of violin virtuosity. So, uh, which you hear him play throughout, but it's one of those show-off violin pieces. And she said he was uh, so mad, he had a mad face. And he finally played it, and he played it twice as fast as its normal tempo, just a... <laughs> and I heard him play, and I realized this is an extraordinary talent in this, in this boy. And to realize that that kind of a thing can be between two people that happened 50 years ago, that I have goose flesh from telling you that. Do you get that in listening to it? That's why I like to be here and tell you that, because then I have the moment of reliving it and telling it to you and passing it by, that we can celebrate. There's a, there's a strawberry, there's another strawberry, there's another strawberry. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, here it comes. Thanks for waiting. I remember now I actually did know that story and I had told it several times to friends of mine after I heard it from you, but I remembered it differently. And I remember my version was that the strawberry, um, the mouse sees the strawberry and jumps to the small vine and eats the strawberry and the person hanging from the vine is no longer in jeopardy. <laughs> 
Now that's, I, I, you didn't hear that from me because I never heard that, but I love that. Let's just think about what if the story were that way? No, but, but, but what would be the moral of that story? What do you think? What, Ellen? What if? The mouse got to the strawberry before he could reach for it. So you have to be faster than anyone else. <laughs> well, I, the mouse is the devil. But, you know, the, the whole thing is so interesting to me. So the point I want to take from all of this is, first of all, about the strawberries all over the place. So that's one thing to highlight. So I want us to keep talking about that. And how much we are shaped in our lives by the people who raise us up, how many people think about their parents and think, my parents were really cheerful people? <laughs> How many people think my parents were not very cheerful people? <laughs> alas, alas. I have a photo. Maybe I'll bring it one of these weeks. I'll get it all blown up. My four grandparents, all of them uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, none of them literate in any language. All of them marginally able to uh, make eke out a living. Uh, work they worked as uh, garment workers, uh, sitting at a kitchen table. They were neighbors, and that's how my parents met. And the four of them are sitting at a kitchen table, playing pickup sticks, <laughs> and having such a good time, you know. And I look at that picture, and I think, look at these people. They're, you say their circumstances. They're poor. They're illiterate, they're uneducated, they're in a, in a place where no one speaks their language, and they're having a good time playing pick-up sticks. And I don't remember anyone ever raising their voice in a hostile way in my house growing up. I don't know about that from that. So that, I think, is... A, anybody else has that? Sweet parents who are nice to each other? Yeah, Ace had. Oh, <laughs> but you already have you already have the card. I actually uh, name my I name myself a lot of names, but I put out a card for an LOS. And coming here is is special because no matter what goes on, when I leave here, I feel like my spirit has been lifted, and I think everyone else feels the same thing about coming here. Whatever the stories are, just as long as I'm really happy that I don't fall asleep at, at the, which <laughs> I can do at times, and I'm grateful of that, but it's, it's just a special place just being, hearing your stories and hearing all, all as they say, all the stuff you do. So it's pretty uh, cool. So, you're, you're very so dear. Now Thank you're an official L-O-S. Okay. But And to, to the degree I am, I, uh, it was a gift to me. And uh, it's a pleasure to pass it on. Not all of my children have the same laugh that I do. But some of them do. That cackle. <laughs> that one. <laughs> and so I think it's partly, it's partly genetic. <laughs> but it has something to do 
with um, I have to make this a little bit Buddhist I don't have to, I'm choosing to make it Buddhist Ananda said to the uh, to the Buddha Ananda was his chief disciple said, is it true Lord that uh, uh, noble friends are half of the holy life and the Buddha said, no that's not true Ananda noble friends are the whole of the holy life That and there's lots of teachings uh, about being a householder, not a monk, and that they say, hang around with people who are noble and lift your spirits and hope for the best and who serve. The reason I, I think uh, I get picked up so much when you see people who do things so helpful for other people. I was another movie that I was going to ask you to go to see, but I forgot what. But let, 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 let's... Let's go a little bit longer because I wanted to tell about, first of all, that the most important line in that particular teaching is look for the strawberries. Because there are a lot of strawberries. And there's a difference between uh-oh or look for the strawberries. And there's a difference between... And how we tell them. I was thinking about this as well. That one of the things I do is I tell stories because something will happen to me and I'll tell it in a story and then sometimes I'll, I tell lots of stories. And then I don't, again. And there's some stories that I tell again and again and again and again. And I had the thought, you know, I should figure out which are the ones that I tell again and again and again. I once had a discussion with my, uh, my good friend and teacher and buddy, Jack Cornfield. And I said, um, you know, it's fun to come. And we were talking to each other. I said, you ever have the feeling that you're telling the same stories over and over and over again? He said, yeah, I am, and he is, and I am too. He said, you know, for a while I felt badly about it, like I should, I should spiff up the talks and I should tell new talks. How many of you, I mean, with all love and respect for him or for me, how many people have heard various talks more than once? Like from, well, let's not even speak, but how many people know Mohammed, the taxi driver? How many people know... Uh, Collins, sixth grade class. How many people know... Um, you tell me. Je vous aide, madame. Je vous aide, I told that to death. But je vous aide is a great story. How many people know the suitcase story? You want to hear the suitcase story? All right, suitcase story. Then we'll talk because I I don't I I I don't want to wait a minute. Why is this moving around? Why is this moving around? Okay, now it is moving around. Oh, I know. Laura, if you're out there, come figure out why my why this sounds all right. All right. So we go on. Um, about five years ago, I was in France and uh, traveling home from uh, traveling home from the home we owned then at that point in the south of France. I, I, something has gone wrong with how it's on my ear, Laura, and it's moving around. I thought you could fix it for me. I was so proud of myself that I did it right but not right enough to have it stay there. 
Anyway, I was coming home by myself for complicated reasons, and uh, uh, it had been a, a, a trying time. And so early in the morning, skipping the, all the details, I came to the train station where I needed to take the train to Paris for eight hours. No, 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 it's not good because this this is here. But that's not the only thing that's moving around. It's moving around. It's moving around. It's on my ears. Yeah. Maybe this is not plugged in and tied down over here. This, this. Okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, no, I did. I are. Uh, so it's early in the morning. I'm needing to board a train to go to Paris to stay over, to take two planes to get home. Uh, and I came into the train station and I went around the I did my ticket and I came around the corner to where there's an escalator that goes up to the tracks and I'm pulling a rather heavy suitcase with me and uh, there's a steps going up and there's an escalator going up and the escalator is broken so I come around the corner and I'm just looking at the broken escalator and I I'm about to embark on this long trip and it's been difficult. And from behind me, someone picks up my suitcase from right behind me, comes to pick it up out of my hand and says, Je vous aide, madame, I'll help you. And runs up the, the three flights of stairs, I can see him running up, puts it down at the top, waves at me and disappears. And I felt so lifted up. So the whole context that I just skipped over is that Seymour had gotten terribly sick in France and he needed to be medevaced and that's why I was there by myself and I was coming home by myself. So I was in a really overwrought stage and it suddenly lifted me up so much that in the world someone would do this. I didn't even ask for it. And the whole way home, riding to Paris, riding to Frankfurt, flying to San Francisco, every time I would think of that young man saying, je vous aide, madame, I would think, well, look at that. People are so kind. You can really depend on people. Really kind. That kept me very happy. Then I came home, and that's five years ago, and he's alive and well, so it has a good end. And the whole year after that, I told that story a lot of times to say how much it bucked me up to think how people are just naturally kind. And then the year later, I was again on a French subway in Paris and needing to take a shuttle train from one place to another to make a connection. I had another bag like this, doors open to the train. Somebody behind me says, Je vous aide, madame. They pick up my bag and walk me into the train. So helpful, it's a heavy bag. Stand me down by the door to go out on the other side. It was great. And I'm standing there, and Seymour is somewhere in the train behind me, but I don't know where. And I'm standing, holding my luggage in front of me, and looking around, and the crowd is all bigger than I am, which they would be. And as we're going this one stop, the person standing right in front of me has like a coughing fit, just coughing, 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 and they're looking at me. And suddenly a person has a paroxysm of coughing and right in your face. You turn away like that. It's a natural thing for you to do. 
he gets thrown over the get the train lurches around a corner and he's coughing and the suitcase is going this way and that way. And then pulls into the station and the doors open, people get out, and then I go to the next step where I get out, and I get out and I look down and I see that my zip lock hold it in front of you, totally safe purse has been opened and my wallet is gone and my passport is gone and my everything is gone out of there. And that that setup of je vous aide, madame, and stick me in front of this person who's now going to have the coughing fit, they must enact that coughing fit. I think when I went to the passport place in Barcelona to get it replaced, they said, what uh, technique did the pickpockets have? Was it the wedding ring technique or the coughing in the face technique or this technique? It's a technique. So I hear I've been saying, you know, people people are great. And then people are not great. And the Zen people would say, people are just what they are, you know? People are just what they are. And it's not, and that we make stories out of it. And we believe story A or story B. And it's very important to me because I don't end up thinking, well, there's more of story B than A or more A than B. Just It just makes me a little bit more sensitive to think about, is this a story I made up? because it suited me, or is this, is this actual truth? When people say, I want to know the truth, and I said earlier that I think that all of the great religious traditions that endure have the same truth at the bottom, and the same truth is that at the bottom is some variation of um, love your neighbor as yourself, some variation of that, that to be able to not have hatred in your heart for anybody else, the absence of hatred in your heart is what allows your connective heart to connect with other people that you know or don't know. Remember earlier today, I said, what are we doing here, really? So this is, I actually got to, I have to explain to you first, I don't have to, I'm choosing to, that I got um, I got a, a um, invitation from Lion's Roar magazine couple of weeks ago to write an article. For, I write for them fairly regularly. And they said the topic this time is why are you really practicing? Because one of the things that's happened with mindfulness over the last 20 or 30, 40 years now is that it's become a relatively household name in the West that uh, mindful tennis, mindful parenting, mindful dating, mindful uh, management, mindful supervising. Down the street from me, they had a a sign, mindful chiropractic. And I thought, you know, I hope so, because what would be unmindful chiropractic? (laughs) It was terrible. (laughs) Witless chiropractic. I'll do whatever I feel like. (laughs) So I hope mindful... But it's it's really taken over the Western world. Everybody's doing mindful. You read it in any kind of a uh, um, an advertisement for a course. It's going to be based in mindfulness principles. Da 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 da. da. We will da da da. Cook or something or other. So the, it's a very good question, and that's wonderful. I celebrate that a mindful world would be. There's actually a book called Mindful Government by Tim Ryan. That's very good. Uh, May he soon start running for office. 
He is actually one of the Congress people from uh, Illinois, Ohio, huh? Ohio, Ohio. Um, but the, the, really, the question is, why are you practicing? And uh, really, the answer is well. I'll, I'll tell you what. What I wrote down here this morning was this young person said to me, what exactly are we trying to do here? And I said, we are trying to transform our minds from impulsive and reactive to thoughtful and responsive. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to go from impulsive and reactive to thoughtful and responsive. And it it, it very much... It fit last yet last yesterday. I got um, an email from <clears throat> my friend um, and colleague uh, Tony Barnard, Barnard, who uh, Bernhardt, who comes and teaches here every once in a while when I'm not here, uh, and who recently wrote that great article for a Lion's Roar that I came here and <laughs> I think it was monumental Lion's Roar. Ran, ran a feature article that Tony wrote, which is his rendition of the Four Noble Truths. How many people remember Tony's rendition of the Four Noble Truths? Go, tell, you tell it. Uh, I just remember that. Uh, I think the first one is Shit Happens. That's the first one, is Shit Happens, and it's the name of the article. And it's, Tony is a volunteer at, um, I think at Folsom, and and he really, and he works with the most really deprived people with the most terrible backgrounds who have really not put themselves together as self-controlled adults and who really are really benefiting from sitting with Tony twice a week for more than a year now. And he said... when he first started to think about writing the other article and he told me about it he said this I teach some Buddhism so he said you know but I can't talk about the Buddha because it's a state penitentiary and you can't have religion in a state thing so I can't talk about religion so I can talk about these particular four ideas four I just said that like I just left Brooklyn yesterday idea that was bad (laughs) idea there are four good ideas and he said, these are the good ideas. He said, the guys get this, these guys that have had these terrible lives. Shit happens, that's the first idea. The second idea is we make it worse. The third one is we don't have to. And the fourth one is here's how. The Buddha himself said life is challenging. Life is unsatisfactory. Life is uncomfortable. Perennially, perpetually uncomfortable. He didn't say it was horrible or it was a disaster or it was not desirable. He just said it's just uncomfortable. And I get that. It's, you know, too hot, too cold, too hungry, too thirsty. It's on a level of being an animal. You have to keep yourself comfortable. When will I eat? When will I lie down? With whom can I procreate? With my mother? All the kinds of things that bottom line mammals need to do and keep themselves safe. You know what's a, 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 the, 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 uh, uh, the idea that comes into my mind just now? 
I'm very interested in, the, in how people are different from other kinds of mammals uh, in certain ways. Uh, like there's a book by Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. And how many people read that, Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers? It's the first of many books by Sapolsky. I just finished reading one called Behave, which is amazing. I really... Did you read Behave? It's wonderful. Uh, and, the, and what Zebras and Ulcers has be, is making the point that zebras don't have any means of self-defense. They have hoofs, but... You know, they, they don't bite, they don't have horns to butt. The only thing they have is they can run fast. So if they smell, like smell of lion or smell of anything that eats zebras, they can take off and really run incredibly fast and get away from... They run faster than lions and tigers and other kinds of jaguars, I suppose, or whatever else eats zebras. And they run, run, run till they can't smell the offensive or frightening smell anymore. And then they stop and they're at a watering hole and they graze and they drink the water. I don't know exactly, I can't remember, so I can't know that they actually did uh, cortisol levels on the zebras before or after. I'm not sure that they actually had laboratory methods of measuring the fear hormones and flight hormones in the zebras. But what it looks like is the zebras realize I'm imperiled, I'm in jeopardy. They run as fast as they can until they're not in jeopardy. And then they forget about it. And they graze and drink the water. They don't start to think to themselves, why did that lion have it in for me? And I'll never go to that particular part of the jungle again. And how stupid of me to graze there in the light, late in the late in the day, which is all things that we would do. I think about how can I avoid that the next time. And then we'd have a whole story about lion security. <laughs> we <laughs> one of the things that's true. I always think this up in the uh, upper retreat hall. There's uh, where everybody can see it. There are there are posters about how to recognize poison oak, how to recognize a mountain lion, how to what to do if you get bitten by a um, a tick, and how to remove a tick or recognize a tick. It's all fine. I mean, I think it's okay to put it out there. But then the fir first night of a retreat. The managers usually say hello to all the people and then the teachers begin to teach. Before the teachers begin to teach, the managers reiterate about the mountain lions that are here and the rattlesnakes and the uh, ticks and the tick season and the poison oak. And I really think it's a bad idea before people are beginning to hear a word about why are we here and what are we doing. Such a noble thing. We're here to transform the mind from its possibility, from its regular possibility of being impulsive and reactive to being uh, thoughtful and responsive. We're here to be, know how to out-strategize the, 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 <laughs> the malign forces. I think it's a good way. It's a, not a good way to choose to make the bedrock of the mind. I'm thinking of how much we set up, how much I set up 
the stories in my own mind and the stories that I privilege over other stories. I think a lot about in another time uh, in another time if somebody had a short fuse we would say, oh, he was, he's choleric. He was always that way. Oh, and she, she was always melancholic. That's if you read the melancholic or choleric or what, phlegmatic or there's a fourth one. What's the fourth one? Sanguine. Is that it? Yes? So that's it. Or I was, my father. Uh, my father was born on the October 11th which is in the middle of Libra I actually don't follow my horoscope and I loved my father tremendously and he was a wonderful man and he had this one thing where he would deliberate something he'd say what do you think I should do so I'm thinking about making this decision this way because of this, 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 this and this what do you think I said sounds good dad why don't you do that he said, okay, but on the other hand, if I did this, could be this, 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 and this. He says, okay, Dad, that sounds good. And then do that way. But on the other hand, I could go back. And it was quite annoying, actually, with him that he would, he would have to beleaguer every kind of thing with so much this, that, this, that. And then I thought about he was born on October 11th. And then I thought, ah, he can't do anything about it. I don't even begin, believe in the horoscope business. But it was so nice to know that, you know. That, okay, he's a Libra, he can't do anything about it. That second part is true. He can't do anything about it is true. He's a Libra, and whether that's why he can't do it or whether ten other reasons are why he can't do it, I don't know what. But if you find a reason to substantiate, yeah. Today is his half-birthday. Today is his half-birthday. Okay. So how old would he be? He, he was born in 1911. He'd be 108, 107 and a half. There you go. 106. He'd be old. He'd be old. You know, and he was a mathematician and he always used to say, I wish I had been born one month later because then my birthday would be 11, 11, 11. But, you know, that's just the way he thought. We make up stories about ourselves. Uh, I, uh, I made up a story. I learned this. I learned this many, many times in the last... Since I saw you, I had an interesting month. I had the flu, which many people have had. And I had a particularly apparently virulent form of the flu. I've been trying to think about how to tell it without making it so dramatic because I'm a very dramatic person. <laughs> so I'll skip the drama, but I was really pretty sick. And uh, so I didn't do anything exotic on my holiday. <laughs> I had a flu and I got better from it. So then after I got better from it, there was something left over. Oh, at, at the end of leaving out all the parts with the flu and how sick I was and how long and all of that, I went to see an acupuncturist that I hadn't seen in many, many years. I knew about her, and I remembered going to see her 30 years ago. And I remember liking her. 
And I said, you know, the arthritis in my cervical spine is acting up, so I think, uh, you know, I want to do some acupuncture. So she said, what happened? And I told her my whole story, all the chapter and verse. So then I said, you know, I, uh, I've been telling myself two stories about this, because I was really sick. Uh, I said, I've been telling myself, I said, before this time, and up to just before I got sick, I had been in the best of health. I was, really, I was really enjoying my vigor. I'm an old woman, I'm past 80, and here I am, I'm in the gym several times a week, and I work out with a trainer, and I'm pressing all kinds of weight, and I'm doing all kinds of stuff, and I'm doing X many push-ups, and feeling proud of myself. She said, you know, actually, I know you with, you're there because I see you there in the gym uh, I said, I'm there at 6 in the morning. She said, I saw you there. Yeah, she said, that's when I go in the gym. I've been seeing you there from the other side of the gym doing all the push-ups and the stuff. So I'm thinking, oh, good, that was nice. And she, you know. <laughs> so I said, so here I, so here I was really doing this, a really hard workout. And, uh, and then I got so sick. And I said, uh, so I have two stories about that. I have one story that says, there you were, uh, you were doing a really an outrageous thing for an 81-year-old woman. You go get up so early in the morning and you go there and for an hour you've got to train her, do this, do that, okay, get up, do this, that, that, that. I said, really pushing myself and maybe I was just doing it for ego. I thought I was having a good time, I felt good, but maybe it was ego and maybe I shouldn't have been doing it. Maybe it was stupid, maybe I overtired myself. So that's why I was so vulnerable to the particular flu bug that overcame me. I said, but then I have another story, and the other story is how lucky I am to have been doing all those workouts in the gym and have been have such a high level of fitness. So when this terrible flu bug came and got me, I was at least able to survive it on my because it's viral and they can't do anything about it until they figure out. And I said, so maybe it was really good that I was there knocking myself out in the gym, and that that gave me the ability to do that. She said, you know, I would go with the second story. <laughs> I like that story better. Why don't you just choose that and let the other one go? What? Well, that's my interpretation of the, of the tiger story. There you go. But that's always kind of ties in. My interpretation of the lion or the tiger story is always it, it's not over. And maybe the guy climbed up the vine and took off. Oh. <laughs> I like that. Maybe it's not over. You know, we, one of the things that I'm, I, was, I remember being very impressed with years ago is people who studied with Sufi teachers, uh, one of the, the part of the Sufi literature are Sufi stories. Did anybody ever do Sufi stories? I only, did you do it? For, did you study that book of Sufi stories? Do you still do it? Because my recollection is that people would study the same stories over and over and over again, which is not so unusual because if you think about it, if you uh, go to a, a Catholic church on any particular Sunday, they, you know they're going to tell the same story again on that particular Sunday in Lent. And if you go to a synagogue this Saturday, they'll tell the particular story that they've told every year on that particular Sabbath. And you tell the same story over and over and over again. 
And the, and the Sufis read their stories over and over and over again. And then you read something else into it each time. Just like we have just... Now, I never actually thought about that other one. See, this we could even elaborate to the mouse tries to get the strawberry. Mouse tries to get the strawberry and something else happens and then this guy climbs up the, this, the vine, I like that particular end, and, and makes a getaway. You don't know. You don't know. I, I'm always, every time I say you don't know, I used to think always about the uh, uh, Zen teacher in Rhode Island, in Providence, who said, don't know, only keep, don't know mind. Only keep, don't know mind. Oh, by the way, on the list of, so I was thinking about maybe, maybe that's not the only story that we should tell over and over again. The one about uh, the, the, the Zen guy and the tiger. Or maybe we shouldn't always tell the story about Je vous aide, madame, because you don't know, because you don't know. There's, maybe there's another way to tell that story about don't jump to a conclusion. Oh, and I was going to tell you about Tony's article, which feeds into that. I actually would like to talk about this. I'm going to talk about it next week. And, no, I'm not going to be here next week. It says in the book I am going to be here because I thought it, I thought we thought I would be here. Then, anyway, it was complicated. Uh, <laughs> here's the whole complication. I was supposed to be here next week. A week ago, I was really feeling not recuperated. And one of the parts of being so sick was my mind wasn't so good, and I knew it. And I wasn't sure I could come back today. And then I told Donald about it. He said, well, I can't do the 11th, but I could do the 18th. I said, do the 18th, and then I'll be there on the 25th. But I think my mind was okay today. What do you think? Was that right? Okay, good. So I'll see you in two weeks. But now I gave away next week. But that's the whole story. That's complete candor. And I felt bad about it. You know, I really felt, you know. But again, you don't know until you know. Barack Obama said, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world until the end of the world. It's the same thing about the mouse and the strawberry. I'd like you to think about what I'd like us to... Okay, so I'm going to go back to Tony because then I'll tell you what I want to think about. Tony has written an article that I hope will he'll send on to the lion's roar, where he's talking about the, the piece of the instructions for mindfulness practice that's the most under, uh, in my mind, the most under-emphasized. The first is sit down, feel your body, feel your breath, pay attention to the body and the breath and the feelings, physical feelings, and then leave off the second one. We'll come back to it. And the third one is pay attention to your mind What's the, what's the climate of your mind? Joy is present, joy is not present. Anger is arising. Oh, I know, I meant to tell you this. Um, how many people know the story about the king whose daughter changes her mind and doesn't want to marry the guy next door? It's the opera called Louisa Miller. I've used it a million times as an example. Anger is rising in me. Uh, I'm in a rage. Speak to me of nothing but vengeance. 
this Saturday morning in the HD in the Opera at 9.55 here and in San Francisco. If you like to go to the HD in the Opera, they are doing Verdi, Louisa Miller. And I'm going to see if that's actually what he says. Be and they do it in Sebastopol as well. It's great. It's great. And I, and I remember writing it down and using it all over the place. I have anger is arising in me. And then, da-da-da-da-da, uh, I'm in a rage. Da-da-da-da-da, speak to me of nothing but vengeance. Da-da-da-da-da, and you get there in three sentences. And I've always taught it in the framework of anger arises in everybody. We get startled and anger arises. And that the mindful response is anger is arising in me. I think I'll just step out and walk around a little bit and take some deep breaths, do some yoga stretches, look out at the stars, take some more deep breaths, and then figure out what to do. You don't have to continue to let the stuff, the, the emotion run away with you. Tony's paper is written on the second of the instructions. Pay attention to what's happening in your body is the first. Pay attention to what's happening in your mind is the second. Pay attention to the truth that arises as you understand this more and more. But the second one is pay attention to how your mind is meeting every moment of experience. This is pleasant, this is unpleasant. This I like, this I don't like. This is not, co oh, no, this is not good. Oh, but this is good. This fooey, no, good, good, fooey, fooey, good, fooey. If you watch during the day, you can see the whole day is fooey, good, fooey, good. And usually we keep it together. We don't, like, get hysterical about that. But often, if the mind is not at ease and it sees something it doesn't like or hears something it doesn't like and it's already in a tense mood, it jumps to the end, not only thinks, um, you know, I don't like this, but it's going to be terrible. The only possible outcome of this is awful. The only, it's really, it's all over. Or, I have to have it. I'm running in right now. I'm buying that dress right, right this second. I'm, I'm breaking off with my partner and getting this new partner. Whatever. Talking about, we are animals that experience pleasant and unpleasant, but making the point that paying attention to pleasant and unpleasant is fine. It's good, actually, if you pay attention to pleasant and unpleasant in the context of a balanced mind, you don't get led into foolishness by the pleasant or unpleasant. That's the whole of how this works. The mind calms down, and it's not impulsive and instinctive and reactive. Get out of here! It says, well, you know what? I think we should talk this over. I don't have a good feeling as I'm thinking about this. Let's just talk it over. Or, wow, that would be great to go to Fiji tomorrow. Let's just talk about <laughs> if that's a good idea, given our budget and the other constraints of our life. That really it's not about swearing off doing things that you like or don't like. It's about thinking it over. I've been saying for at least a year that my favorite teaching instruction is T-I-O, Think it over. I've, I've learned that so much in these last few weeks. Uh, I really, I, I, there's a lot of back phoning around saying, you know, I'm, I, I'm not at all well. I'm not getting better. I won't go. I won't be all right on the 11th. And I thought it over. <laughs> I thought, yes, I will. Uh, but, and, you know, I, I don't fault myself for it. 
I didn't feel well and I was frightened and it was a long time. But you don't know. You don't know. You might climb out of the ravine. You might climb out of the ravine. What I would like for everybody to think about, first of all, I'd like you all to come back all the time, especially if you're new, be my guest, come back. Uh, And when it's not me, it's Donald. And Donald said to tell you, he's going to talk about, he's going to continue to take up what he's talking about. Things are not what they seem. Is that what he was talking about? Yeah, that's what he said he was going to talk about. And then I'll be back after that. And then I'll be back... uh, probably several days in May because I was supposed to be <laughs> well, I was supposed to be with my husband on a cruise in the Ukraine but something else happened <laughs> I got sick <laughs> I don't want to go on the cruise in Ukraine I don't want to go anywhere I want to stay here And uh, but the other, the other semi-determinant of that well, that's the main determinant of that the second is I studied up on the Ukraine and I read a bunch of books about the Ukraine, and I decided I didn't want to go there anyway. Uh, uh, I mean, Simo's family, his father was born in Ukraine, but that doesn't elevate the whole place enough to want to go. But we'll go other places at other times. But so the, the thing about, I'm now thinking about... Um, the Zen teacher who said... Uh, only cultivate, don't know mind. And the line from the third Zen patriarch that says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. That's a great line. To know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Every once in a while, I've been listening to a great deal of uh, political news. If, if, if you're really can't go anyplace and you're bedridden for a while, you watch a lot of TV. I didn't watch a lot of TV. And every once in a while, a politician who I in general do not support says something that might be a good idea. And I discover how hard it is for my mind to appreciate that that person just had a good idea. Don't you notice that? It would make it much easier if they had bad people and good people, not complex people. So, you know, je vous aide, madame. Some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Uh... Just think about how the mind moves ahead, makes decisions, tells stories. I'm very, very taken with that ability to tell a story and then believe it. And really, one of the things that I, I said this halfway, as I told you about Tony. And I told you about the movie. And I had a note for myself to tell you uh, do you remember my son was here the day that um, George was here and the day that um, um, the Threshold Choir was here singing? Uh, my son who does the AIDS cycle ride was here and he's just sending you, a, he's letting you know that should you be interested in his uh, progress in preparing, he is at www.aidslifecycle.org. So if you want to, if you want to look up aidslifecycle.org, 
uh, he'll put you on his mailing list and he'll write you about the trip as he goes on it and you'll get mail from him about how it is. It's a very inspiring thing with 22,000, no, could this be 2,000, 2,500 people ride out of the Cow Palace at 6 o'clock in the morning on some morning in early June, uh, often dressed in costumes. And they ride all the way to Los Angeles in a week to raise money for AIDS research, which he has been doing for 10 years and raises $10,000 a year. So anyway, some people wanted to know how to find out. That's how to find out. Um, I would like for you to come next week if you have, if you are sort of familiar with having been here and hung around, which are, which of the sentences from the teachings really do you good that you would like to say? This is the best teaching: <coughs> to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The four noble truths in maybe a more elegant way than Tony's way, but or unelegant, it's all right, it's the same. I was thinking about peace as possible, which is the third noble truth. Uh, Tony says it is, shit happens, we make it worse, we don't have to. Here's how. The we don't have to, I usually translate as uh, peace as possible. And I thought of it this morning when we were sitting quietly together, because I thought to myself, at one point I was sitting here, very peaceful, and then I thought, I'll just look at what I would plan to say, I'll see what order I was going to talk about it. I said, no, I won't. I mean, I had the thought, Then I, I thought, no, you don't have to do that. And there was an inhibition of a momentary impulse to do something, and I didn't do it. It's like a moment, a tiny moment in time. Then I was sitting again, and my mind was so peaceful. And I thought, look at that. It all has to do with impulsivity and the constant push in the mind. Do this, do that, do this, do that. The second noble truth is imperative is suffering. Every time the mind thinks, I have to do that, I have to have it, I have to do it, da, 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 da. If it just says, let's see what happens next, then it relaxes and it's peaceful. So I'll bring a list of ten of those things. And we can tell the stories over and over again because I like the idea that if we tell a story enough, we'll have alternative endings. <laughs> it's not like alternative facts, just alternative endings. <laughs> May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Yes. When? So now you have to remind me. I really I have lapses of memory. It's absolutely fine. I'll send you an email. Um, are you available on any
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.